Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Country boys and girls getting down on the phone. Come on around back Arizona, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour here at Rosie on the House, the first Saturday of the month. That means we've got Julie Murphy with the Arizona Farm Bureau talking farm, fresh, air, Z beef. If you're following along in our annual homeowner handbook, you can order one for free at rosieonthehouse.com. Just let us know the address you'd like us to mail it to, and we'll drop one in. Kind of gives you a preview of what we're covering each Saturday morning, uh, along with... Uh, additional information and additional resources on maintaining and improving your home, castle, or cabin in our 8 o'clock hour, the first hour. We like to talk about, you know, what the quality of life, uh, all things outdoor living. And uh, like I said, we've got Julie Murphy with the Arizona Farm Bureau, and you always have a great lineup of guests to join you in studio. I'm very excited because this is the first time we've had this most recent rancher on and what we've been doing this for about 10 years, so I'm quite excited about it. And before I introduce this rancher, I also want to highlight and mention how we, um, the Arizona beef industry is so good at what they do that they can feed 8 million people annually. Can you believe that? So Sarah King, which is a little more than we have in the state, I hope. I, I think we're still under eight million. <laughs> I know we're pushing it, but so we we're pretty much exceeding population-wise how how well we can feed you. So my guest today is Sarah King of Anvil Ranch. They're located in Pima County, and Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me this morning. So we're just going to roll right into it. I wanted to first mention how many people we're feeding with Arizona beef. And by the way, that statistics, want to get, give uh, props to one of our organizations that we hang out with. The Arizona Beef Council has calculated that statistic. Eight million people can be fed with Arizona beef. And you're one of those ranches. So we are. Yes. Yeah. So tell and me. Go I got ahead. a question on that eight million yes. feeding. Yes. Now. The is, numbers guy has a question. <laughs> is, is that like oh, once a day? Or does that include my steak and eggs at morning, my cheeseburger at lunch, and my steak and mashed potatoes at dinner? <laughs> so, good question. I'll have to ask the Arizona Beef Council. But they gave us the statistics not too long ago, so I'll shoot some of that information. But that's a good question. They just basically said 8 million people annually can be fed with our Arizona beef. So, Sarah, tell us about your background and also the King family's history in agriculture, specifically, obviously, ranching. All righty. Well, um, a long and windy tale, right, on both things. So I um, was not from Arizona originally and grew up in a couple different places. And then um, starting when I was about 10, we came out to the Elkhorn Ranch here uh, just south of the Anvil Ranch. And that's a guest ranch. I'd grown up riding English, and um, my family was kind of interested in a dude ranch vacation. I have two younger brothers, and it seemed like a good way to get outside, have a, an adventurous vacation, and uh, see some different parts of the country. So we started coming out to the Elkhorn as guests. And then um, I went to a college in North Carolina, Davidson College. And then if you're a Steph Curry fan, 
Steph went to Davidson as well. So a little fun fact there. Um, and then during summers in college, I went and worked in Montana at the Elkhorn Ranch up there, their sister ranch. And then after graduating college, came down here to work at the Elkhorn down here, guided rides, um, learned how to shoe horses, met a whole bunch of people. And one of those people is my now husband, Joe, who was the, the neighbor next door that I got interested, uh, introduced to and by his childhood buddy who was working at the barn as well. And he'd just gotten married. And so he was very much in the mode that everybody should be married. Everybody should be together and all his buddies should be together. And so anyway, he, he introduced Joe and I and uh, the rest is history, I guess you'd say. So fun. By the way, listeners uh, on azfb.org or Arizona Farm Bureau's website, we have the story, the history of the King Ranch. And I, uh, we wrote this article several years ago. So if you would just plug in King, uh, up will come the Anvil Ranch history. You're a 100-plus-year-old farm, so that means that your kids, Sarah, would be what? Sixth or seventh? Our kids are the fifth generation. Okay, fifth generations. Yep. The Anvil got started back in 1895 uh, by Manuel King, who is my husband's great-grandfather. And he came out of California. There's some unknown factors of was he, what was the rest of his family doing, et cetera. But it always sounds like he was leaving a stepmother that he wasn't a big fan of. So he struck out in this direction and came um, to a ranch that was out here and worked for them for a few years and then got paid in cattle and so settled in the, the valley, the Altar Valley, where we live now and picked up different areas of land and started his family. Um, and then the second generation, John King, Joe King, um, Bill King, got started on various different parts of the ranch and John King is my husband's grandfather and then his father is also John um and the the line has continued and the folks have steadily ranched and you know it's looked a little different for each generation but the anvil's been in in the works ever since 1895 which is pretty exciting Really, now, you have a question. I don't have the entire Old West language, you know, dedicated to memory, but I'm pretty sure uh, stepmother means posse. It was code <laughs> word for a posse. He was possibly he, he at was, least he, that's the case. <laughs> that would really stir the pot and thicken things up a little bit. Over that time, what has uh, in, in the ranching? Have y'all stuck to one particular breed, or have you tried them all? Uh, I don't know that we go all the way to saying that we've tried them all, but we have switched things up over the years. You know, I, I think one of the things about the King family is that there's a dedication to tradition, but also to evolving with time and to being proactive and thinking about what would be best for the landscape and what would be best for the business at the time. So for a while, the ranch ran Herefords, and then today we currently run Red Angus cows. So, Sarah, I have to ask this question because I kind of knew your story and the how you and Joe met. So did you fully grasp all that ranch life would mean until you and Joe married? <laughs> I mean, you kind you of know, got exposure to it because of being on the Elkhorn Ranch. Right, but Right. You know, there's a lot of things that I would say I did know or was more familiar with than, 
you know, most kids probably growing up in suburbia kind of thing. Um, you know, the one I don't know if I realized how many meetings it was going to involve. There's many meetings. <laughs> and thanks in part to all the Farm Bureau meetings, right? Okay, yeah. on that point, yesterday, Joe, because he's in the Livestock Issues Advisory Committee meeting, he, of course, this is your husband, he called in yep. and he said, guys, I'm on a horse, so I'll have a phone on mute most of the time. But when he would he was, call in to share his points or his concerns, you'd hear – cows bawling in the background it was perfect it was very scenic sound wise yep that's joe he's very scenic very uh picturesque there and yes he actually was riding my horse yesterday and uh, i wasn't riding yesterday and he said that there was some point in the meeting where he was asked something that he needed to respond to and it was right as they found the big group so just at the noisiest point and, yeah, it sounds like you guys got to pick up some of that in the background. Too. I loved it. I thought it was classic, and it was so Farm Bureau. So what part of the King family ranch legacy impresses you the most or impressed you the most? Well, I think that anything that can withstand, we're at 130 years almost now. Um, you know, that's that's a long legacy, and that's pretty impressive to me. And then I think, you know, I referenced it a few minutes ago, just the ability to pivot and be thinking about things to tweak or things to change. I think with that long legacy, it can be really easy to just, this is the way we've always done it. Um, and there's, you know, there's some of that stuff, but there's also a lot of things that we think about regularly or just generally adapt as things are going on. You know, the, the ranch is not a, a frozen monument in time kind of thing. And I think that's pretty cool. And it really can't be because you're operating a business. And to that point, yeah. how are you marketing your cattle? Is it uh, mostly through the auction house? Are you doing any direct or retail marketing with your cattle? Um, so we do most of the stuff through the auction, through Clay Parsons up at Miranda Stockyards. And he does a great job, and he's got a couple of different marketing techniques and um, places that he goes and buyers that he contacts that really give folks a, a chance to have their, their cattle marketed in the best way possible. And, uh, you know, we do a lot of backgrounding in the fall with weaning off the calves and then holding them for a little while and getting them used to eating by themselves. You know, I always say it's it's kind of like – kids going to college that they they get weaned and they have a few moments of kind of, whoa, what's, what's going on? And then they realize that they're hanging out with all their buddies and mom's not in sight and they can go ahead and have a great time um, hanging out down here in our corral. So we, uh, we do that and we try to get clay, you know, photos and information about the cattle and about any um, vaccinations that they might have had or just, you know, general how they've been raised and get that out to Clay so that way he can share it appropriately with buyers. You know, I follow him on the social channels and it's kind of fun because he does. He'll market whatever. He talks it up. Yep. He uh, shows what's being marketed and it's pretty cool. You know, it's not unusual for an Arizona ranching family to have been in business for a hundred plus years. We also have some of those ranching families that are kind of first generation and second generation. So we have this really diverse mix of ranching families in Arizona. And that's what makes it so significant.
this song has been playing in the back of my mind the whole first segment. <laughs> Julie Murphy with the Arizona Farm Bureau spokeswoman joins us the first Saturday of every month to talk about farm fresh commodities that are coming right out of our farms and ranches in the great state of Arizona. And we're talking Arizona beef today, and you've got a great guest, Sarah King from the Anvil Ranch, who's been uh, ranching. The, the King family's been ranching southern Arizona since 1895. Yes, amazing. And, in fact, we had just uh, closed out this first segment talking about it's really not unusual to run into a ranching family that is in that fifth and sixth, seventh generation here in Arizona. And also we have some of our beginner farmer ranchers that maybe will be first and second generation. But, Sarah, another question that came up during the break is do you guys do a combination of leasing state and federal land and owning? Like what's your land structure? Yeah, so we have deeded land um, that makes up the base of the ranch, and then we also lease Arizona state land, and then we work with Pima County to manage some land as well. Um, That's part of what they own, and then also a little bit of BLM land, Bureau of Land Management. What a mix. And on that point, since you've been ranching on that land, and and maybe some of those things have jerked, change and there's been variations and stuff but uh, it's kind of proof of the pudding that our ranchers protect the land out there and then you're involved in the Altar Valley Conservation Alliance talk about what that is what that means and also your role with it sure so I've been involved in the Altar Valley Conservation Alliance since 2010 and I'm currently the executive director of the organization And it's an organization, a collaborative conservation organization that got started by the ranchers in the Altar Valley back in 1995. So we're almost 30 years into the work that the Alliance has been doing. And it was really started by the ranchers who were thinking about the future, thinking about what this landscape looks like. And for reference, the Altar Valley, if you're familiar with Kitt Peak, you've been to the Altar Valley. If you've been to the Buenos Aires National Wildlife Refuge, you've been to the Altar Valley. It's a 600,000-acre valley that's southwest of Tucson and is largely undeveloped. Um, a lot of ranches out here. And it's pretty rare these days that you have something, of an undeveloped, unfragmented landscape of that size that's this close to a major metropolitan area like Tucson. So pretty cool area, pretty special. Um, And so the ranchers were thinking about development in Tucson, thinking about landscape pressures and what could be done about that. And the Malpai Borderlands group over in the Douglas area just gotten started. So kind of taking some cues from there. This group got its feet on the ground, thinking about restoring prescribed fire to the landscape, working on erosion control, working on the altar wash. So, you know, not small goals, a lot of big picture things, a lot of stuff that they were thinking about, and um, that's still continuing on today. So 600,000 acres, is that what you said? Yep, yep. That's a lot of ground to cover. And for me, uh, you know, Arizona resident, if I look at it from the public's perspective, what does that mean to me? I can tell that you're preserving the land, but big picture, does that – my ranchers are making sure that we're preserving some very pristine lands, right? Yep. 
So yeah. we're we're thinking big landscape conservation, thinking about outdoor recreation opportunities, thinking about wildlife habitat, um, connectivity corridors, just watershed health as a whole, and thinking cross boundary, you know, and all those uh, land ownerships that I referenced of lease and et cetera, cross boundary in that realm, cross boundary between ranches and fence lines, um, and really thinking about the watershed as a whole. And thinking about what that means to folks in Tucson and, and really beyond through Arizona and beyond into the U.S. and what the, those open landscapes can mean. I can imagine you've seen some amazing country in your role with the Altar yeah. Valley. So interesting. And maybe this is a good segue to all this. The question that I have next for you is what do you think is the most significant contribution that the Arizona beef industry has made to not only the state's agriculture, but maybe to our landscapes. Any commentary on that? Well, you're you're exactly right, and that would be my thinking. That you know how um, the beef industry is able to combine uh, multi-use landscape uses and um, have conservation be part of things, have open landscape be part of things, and then also to be providing a high-quality protein as the outset or the outcome of doing all that work. Um, yeah, I think that's a really important piece of Arizona ranching. How many ranchers are involved in this alliance? Uh, there are about nine and or ten. The number is kind of in flux, and we've got some different folks who are coming into the area, and we're working on having them join our board as well. And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty adaptable. And I would imagine that most of those ranchers also maybe are ranching on that alliance land, correct? Yeah. So the the land doesn't belong to the alliance, um, but it's you know anybody who's within the Altar Valley as an agricultural operation is entitled to a seat on our board. And then we've got three community representatives and. So there's folks that we work with regularly through our board, and then we also work with a variety of partners on the landscape, you know, either representatives of those agencies, other NGOs, um, folks who are in agriculture uh, in the valley and haven't necessarily had a seat on the board or chosen to have a seat on the board. So it's a real mix of um, anybody in the community. Hang tight, Sarah. We can do a lot here at Rosie on the House, but we can't stop the clock. We'll be back after bottom of the hour news. How about if you got a flight steak, a Swiss steak, a sirloin too, a standing rib rose that's good for you, a cheeseburger ribeye or a big porter house, or filleting all the melting in your mouth. Julie Murphy has Sarah King from the Anvil Ranch joining us on the line, calling from southern Arizona out of the Altar Valley. And, you know, she, Sarah, you had mentioned, you know, we all have tried various varieties and you're uh, currently ranching Red Angus. And, Julie, maybe you could help answer this as well. You know, when in, in the farming and ranching industries, you know, we're propagating a lot of things. And, you know, citrus is a great example. You've got your root stock and then you've got your fruiting stock and they're grafted together. Can Can you and Sarah get together and, Grow me a steer that has more than one tri-tip cut on it? <laughs> I wish we could. Sarah will probably speak to that better than me. But, you know, a three-ounce serving of lean beef is an excellent source of protein, and it supplies more pr- than half the protein most people need each day. So, okay, I might not get you more than one tri-tip, but, you know, 
we've been able to do quite a few improvements in agriculture, right, Sarah? Yes. So, yes, we cannot make you more than one tri-tip. Um, it's, yep, the cow is the cow. But, <laughs> you know, I think that, that one of the, there there are many things about the Internet, right? But one of the great things about the Internet is how accessible recipes and cooking ideas are. And I think that that's a great way to not just enjoy some of your favorite cuts, but to explore some new cuts and have a few culinary adventures. And there's a lot of lean cuts for those that are really wanting to focus on lean protein, and beef supplies a lot of that as well. You know, we've had some really good conversations here, Sarah, already. We're halfway through the program. What has struck you the most about the quality and the taste of our Arizona beef? Because we do it really well. Like the Arizona Beef we Council do, we do tells, it really well. Yes. Or we do it medium rare if you're into that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Very good, Sarah. You're quick. This did you have your coffee or something? <laughs> I must have had plenty of coffee this morning. <laughs> I, my husband will be proud of me for that one. That's yes, the type of joke that he would like. But uh, no, I, I think you know it's outstanding taste, um, excellent quality. Families who are raising the beef who are really committed to turning out a quality product and um, getting that onto your grocery store shelves. And you and Joe have two kids. Uh, what are their names and ages? Uh, Evelyn and George, and Evelyn is eight and George is six. And you're raising them on quality Arizona beef. And yep. now, now that you're a rancher yourself, uh, having embedded yourself even before marrying Joe and marrying into the King family because of what you did on the adjacent ranch, but have you become a connoisseur of quality tasting beef? And what's one of your favorite recipes to cook? Ooh, uh, so so many options. Um, I I do like to cook and I do like to eat as well. And um, you know, funny that you mentioned the lean cuts. I really like flank steak. Um, I think that's an underrated cut that if you marinate it and cook it properly, it is a great um, cut that is delicious and tasty and, yeah, always satisfying. I mean, obviously, there are also the the standard ribeyes and burgers, and I think all those are great as well. I also think it's fun to experiment with how you partner your beef, you know, stuff like chimichurri and um, just mixing different flavors in and, and looking for those tastes, I think, is a lot of fun with beef. Whenever well, we cook, we're always looking for what makes a great leftover. And I don't can't think yes. of one single recipe that has beef in it that doesn't make a good leftover. Yes. Sometimes. I agree with you 100%. The leftovers are critical. And, yes, we love having... Um, you know, either leftover flank steak or, or ribeye or anything um, that then you make into tacos or, you know, just make that extend further and make your time in the kitchen pay off. Which means that beef is very economical. By the way, our producer team has a question for you. Yeah, we had a caller come call in, speaking of family and tradition. Um, they were wondering if, since your last name is King and you're on a ranch, she knows it's Anvil Ranch, but wants to know if, if there's any relation to the King Edition Ford trucks? Ah, good question. Um, I wish there was. We'd have a lot of free trucks around here then, but <laughs> we are not related to the King family in Texas, and that is who's, that's who's got all the trucks, apparently. Well, it, you know, 
it, it, I'm sure if we went back several generations, we would probably discover that there's some kind of relation there. We just don't know what it is yet. And we, you done. still don't have a, a free Ford because of it, but still. <laughs> we can still try. We'll, we, just, we'll keep going. Yes. So what are some of the things that uh, keep you awake at night as it relates to the ranching industry that you know that you and Joe need to be committed to? Ooh, the hard-hitting questions yes. now. We're, we're getting in the second half of things. Um, you know, I think mostly communicating with the public and getting information out there about what ranching is, what ranching does, um, multi-use uh, landscapes and how that fits into conservation goals. Um, you know, a lot of folks are removed from farm and ranch life and don't have a sense of what that looks like. And, you know, it, it's not, um, it's mostly it, just a lack of knowledge kind of thing. And so bridging bridging those knowledge gaps and getting folks the resources they need to have informed conversations and to know the questions to ask and, and what our day-to-day life looks like. And because it's May, we're still kind of, the weather has been absolutely beautiful, speaking of that. But are you in... Am I correct in saying in the midst of spring roundup, and what does that mean for us urbanites that have no concept of what goes on in the ranch today? Good question. So we are in the middle of having a whole bunch of calves born. We tend to have the spring calf crop. Um, so most of our, our cattle breed back kind of in the summer and then have babies that are born during the springtime. So we've got lots to do with them. And then we also have a smaller herd that tends to calve in the fall. So then that means that they're ready to be weaned during this spring stretch here. And so that, what you heard from Joe yesterday (laughs) on his meeting, was him gathering up those ones that are ready to be weaned. Um, and then we'll we'll start weaning next week, and we'll have our smaller group. Usually, the bulk of our weaning gets done in the fall, and that's really our our big gather time. Um, and then the rest of the year, we kind of move them from pasture to pasture and do rotational grazing. And you had mentioned, you know, what you can find on the internet, and I'm looking. Uh, I can't find uh, anything that has a picture of y'all's brand. Is it a is it an anvil shaped brand? Is it a K? What just describe your family brand? Sure. So there was an Anvil brand that was kind of in the mix back in the day, but then our brand is the 24. So if you picture writing a two and then across that straight part on the bottom, make a cross and that's the 24. And then there's a bar below that. And what's the 24? Uh, a mystery. It was available. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of speculation on exactly how that came in. There was a a family brand called the 98 and that was for 1898, which was the year Manuel's first daughter was born. So there's speculation that there were some ties to the year 1924 or something like that, but it's kind of been lost in the shuffle as to what the significance was. That's interesting. So how do we get people to eat more beef? <laughs> that, that sells itself. <laughs> it's just finding it locally is yeah. what we're trying to connect oh, to. Oh, I can tell. I can give tips on that. Yeah, Julie's got all the info. But, you know, I, I think it goes back to people knowing how to cook it and 
being willing to do a little bit of Googling of the deep dive into what you think you want and what you're, you know, either what you're trying to make or what cut you see at the store and thinking, hmm, I'm going to check out what I could do with this and experimenting that time um, or being adventurous at a restaurant. You know, I think it's it's getting that knowledge and mix of um, adventure out there because I think every meal can be an adventure. And we have to give props and thank yous to Arizona Beef Council because they do a really good job of kind of giving yeah. us insights on recipes that we can eat. And um, they have a great website if you go to the Internet and log on because – and they always talk about some of the very basic cuts that all of us can enjoy. And like you were just describing earlier, Sarah, extending that – and and this is a fun story that actually, despite the pandemic, came out of the pandemic. We had on fillyourplate.org, which is Arizona Farm Bureau's, you know, consumer-facing, public-facing website, and we have a lot of searchable recipes. Uh, you can searchable database for your farmers markets, all sorts of fun stuff. And in the ag product section, which is searchable, you can select beef in the drop-down menu. We used to have, pre-pandemic, about 25 of our beef producers here in the state of Arizona that would sell you directly, whether that was <laughs> half a beef or specific cuts. But it ballooned during the pandemic period to more than 50. So if someone goes to fillyourplate.org now and you're searching for beef, and you can kind of find out about them. Uh, some of them are exclusively grass-fed. Uh, some of them have a... Uh, Heritage breed, I hope I said that right, Sarah. Heritage breed, which is if, again, if you're a real connoisseur of beef, you can kind of find some classic heritage breeds that you might not find normally and you certainly wouldn't necessarily find in the grocery store. So there is a lot of local beef that's sold directly. We still need to, and the pun is intended, beef up some of our regional harvest facilities so we have uh, more capacity to that but there's always been a real draw and a real interest in our local beef and we absolutely have it so that's kind of neat and i i know some of these heritage breeds are really rare one of them is the criollo it's a spanish breed and the tomerlins i think they still raise it i don't know if they do the direct market anymore but it's it's a smaller uh, breed of cattle Uh, they're range fed and um, their meat the marbling is even different. So we definitely have distinctions within the beef breeds and quite a few of them, correct? Yep, yep. There's something for everybody and I think um, gives people, gives the ranchers options and gives the consumers options too. Yeah. So, and, and another thing, aligning with our local beef, this was something that came out of the uh, U of A. It was done several years ago. We'd probably need an update to this, but the University of Arizona, in conjunction with the Arizona Beef Council, did a study. And even in our, if you go into the grocery store, you go to our meat market or the the meat section, the beef there, uh, they found that at least 53% of it was local. So you still have a significant, quote-unquote, local representation, even when you go to the meat counter in the grocery store and a lot of times people aren't fully aware of that which is exciting to me because beef is to use the american beef council (laughs) tagline beef is what's for dinner (laughs) beef is what's for dinner so 
Um, what else do you think that we in the ag industry can do, Sarah, to help with kind of highlighting the quality of our Arizona beef? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the work that you're doing, Julie, with your communication stuff with Farm Bureau is really important, reaching out to consumers, giving them opportunities to engage with farmers and ranchers and understanding what's going on on the ranch, on the farm. Um, you know, I, I think that's really the most important thing is striking up those conversations. And everyone I paid her to say that for me. <laughs> <laughs> like my steak well done, potatoes fried. Football games on Monday. Medium night. rare. <laughs> what a what a way to ruin a steak. Ooh. Now, Julie, I'm gonna need Sarah's address. Okay. She mentioned how much she likes flank steak. And I like flank steak too. And I need to send her a book I got for Christmas. Sarah, so when we get your address, right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna order you this book. It's the best grilling cookbook ever written by two idiots. It's by the Perfect. it's by the Grill Dads, Ryan Fay and Mark Anderson, and they've got a flank steak grill recipe in there that we've eaten probably three or four times uh, and you since Christmas. High endorsement. It's it's a, it is a good flank steak, and and flank isn't one of my favorite cuts, but I mean the way I like it, I like it, but um, it's not one of my favorites. But I'm gonna send that book to you as a thank you for being on air with us this morning. And then well, I'm, I'll come up to the ranch and have flank steak <laughs> yeah, they will with all the kings. Show, they will all show up. Yes. Yeah, they'll so. come test it out. <laughs> yes, I'll test it out. And Romy had a question for you about water. Yeah, I was looking at the layout of you know, the area y'all are in, and there doesn't seem to be a, any major ongoing water flow. I mean, where, where do y'all get your water from? Is it Do you get enough runoff from the mountains and that fills up? Stock tanks that are spread throughout the ranch, do you have to pump out of the ground? Yep. What What's your water resource uh, portfolio? So we have some stock tanks that, yep, do water runoff and then collect into little ponds. And, you know, that's variable with how much it's rained. Um, and, yeah, we, we just always have our fingers crossed. And then we do also have wells in a couple spots throughout the ranch that we pump water from. And then do storage tanks and um, smaller metal tanks that the cattle can drink from and wildlife and that kind of thing, too. Um, so, and one thing I want to add to this, especially because we got to talk about the Conservation Alliance and just the efficiencies that ranchers pour into their businesses. The U.S. is considered a leader in efficient and sustainable beef production providing 18% of the world's beef with only 6% of the world's cattle. That's a USDA statistic, and I think it's an amazing one. When While we, you know, have a lot of, lot of cattle, but we don't have as much as the world have, has, and yet we are providing 18% of the world's beef. Amazing stuff there. Sarah, any final thoughts about the beef industry and... Sharing I, with consumers. And I do have one question for oh. before we go out. And I got a quick one, too. Okay. okay. Gary, away. Gary, you go first. Mine's the hardest question of the hour, so it'll wait for There's the There's one cut of beef that popped in my head, and Rosie, you and I probably had it at one time. Beef tongue. Is that a thing in Arizona? I never hear about it. I think it is a thing. And that, so I'll confess, I have never cooked beef tongue. 
Um, and my understanding is that there's some strategy to it and yes, that there these is. tongue tacos are really the way to eat it then. Hmm. It's funny you guys that. Just this week, my neighbor brought uh, us a beef tongue. Oh, how and funny. And man is like, what am I supposed to do with this? I'm like, you're asking me? <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's in that, Maybe it's in the book that you referenced not, earlier, Rosie. Not, not much a Cajun won't eat, that's yeah. for sure. All right. Tough, <laughs> tough no, as, but have you ever cooked a beef tongue? I've never cooked one, but I have yeah, eaten it. I, uh, Papa Rosie loved it. Okay. Hardest okay. question of the hour. Y'all are located um, in an area that's just a little bit north of a particular wilderness area. It's a sky island, and it's named after the peak that's the highest peak in that range. Pronounce that peak. Babakivri Peak. <laughs> oh, I love it. Ding, 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 I've, ding, I've ding, heard ding. it pronounced a hundred different ways. Okay, she wins She wins two editions that's of the, the cookbook. Answer, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. definitely have to send her the cookbook. And one more time, how, say that one more time for us. Babakivri Peak. Wow. I'm not, I'm not even going to try and repeat it. i got to practice that. <laughs> you, want me, a couple you, times. Want me, you want me to spell it for you? <laughs> B-A-B-O-Q-U-I-V-A-R-I. And is That's it? That's it. Yep. And more important, it's got to be a beautiful area, right, Sarah? It is pretty. Yep. It's beautiful. And it's pretty special out here. A lot of the areas get named after or by the first settlers that were in the areas. It was Manuel. Did he name that peak? Or? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. That. That has long history with the Tohono O'odham. Okay. And it, it's a very significant cultural peak for them. Um, and we do border the Tohono O'odham Nation um, in the Babakibri Mountains. And, yeah, so it's very significant for them. Do we know what that word means to the Tohono O'odham? Um. I don't know exactly what Babakivri means. My understanding is, and, and my apologies to any Tohono O'odham listeners if I'm incorrect on this, um, but my understanding is that it's the home of a God that's very special to them. Okay. You never have to apologize for answers to questions we didn't. We, 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 we did. but and I, we do I, have an open line. Somebody I, could yeah, call and I, give us that answer. Yep, and yep. and I, I would like to just close with one more comment that a lot of people are going to maybe get their nose bent out of shape because it's political. But this is not a political statement. I've been in that area for 50 years between where Sarah's located and a little town called Sasabi in the Buenos Aires National Wildlife Refuge. And I can tell you, over those 50 years, I've learned the difference between environmentalists and a conservationist. And what they've done down there the last 50 years is an incredible testimony to what a true conservationist can get done on the land. You can go to azfb.org and sign up for an annual membership for $60 and support Arizona Ag. And it comes with a long list of benefits I don't even have time to mention. Thank you, Julie.